This time on Chew Diligence, Jay Rieger and Company, a Kansas City brand, started more than a century ago. Growing up, we had old advertisements, old shot glasses, old bottles. The history and family connection that brought back the whiskey. I had this idea for this, you know, throwback to the 1920s speakeasy style bar. I was going to call it Manifesto. I wanted someplace dark, someplace hidden, discreet, small, intimate, uh, where we could do really high-end cocktails and that kind of thing. And... Um, I had met the chef owner of the restaurant that was located in the old Rieger Hotel. My dad had actually just passed away of cancer, and so I really wanted to go in and see what was going on in an old family historic heirloom, more or less. And one of the things my dad asked was, if I'm not around, make sure you go in and say hi to them. The East Bottoms evolution. People will venture down to that neighborhood. Um, and that was, that was enough for us to say it's absolutely worth you know investing in and taking it to the next level. It just kind of all came together as this is going to be our home forever and we can really do something. And sliding into their next big chapter. We couldn't do a Ferris wheel or a roller coaster, <laughs> uh, so we did a slide to start. Yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, we are so excited to have two guests in the podcast studio with Jill and I. We have Ryan Maybe and Andy Rieger. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Uh, we're about a, a little over a week out right now from a massive new chapter in Jay Rieger & Co. We'll get to that. The metal slide, 45,000 square feet, lots of whiskey and all that amazing stuff. Uh, first, the food on True Diligence. Jill, where have you been eating? I have been actually um, seeing some of the early stuff for Fox and Pearl, which also has a grand opening on um, the 12th. And uh, just so we know, I do do PR for them. But um, looking behind the scenes, pretty cool. Uh, the, everything looks beautiful. You're seeing it all over Instagram right now. The hearth, the curing room, the patio. And just really cool design. And you've eaten some amazing stuff there, too, have you? I have. What about you, Lindsay? What, are, what have you been doing? I made it to the restaurant at 1900. Oh, my goodness. Blown away. It was my birthday. So we decided to get out of the house for a minute. And uh, the lobster Pop-Tart, I knew the first time I saw it on the menu, I was like, this has got to be a hit. It was awesome. And they told me that they can't take it off because so many people order it. They try to change stuff out. But that's such a hit with everybody that they keep the lobster Pop-Tart going. Wait, is it really a Pop-Tart? Yeah, it's like baked, flaky, amazing. It's on my Insta if you want to take a peek. No sprinkles, right? No sprinkles, savory Pop-Tart, little uh, spot of cream on the side and tomatoes. It was awesome. And the service and the space is beautiful. I was just, it was just a really lovely experience. Yeah. I've eaten there too, and it, it's really lovely. And that is Linda Doerr. Nominated as a semifinalist for a James Beard Award this year too. Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, Mr. Maybe, where have you been eating? San Antonio Carniceria and Taqueria. Everyone thinks that there's only one in KCK, but there's one on Independence uh, Avenue right across from my house, just up the street from the, the distillery. Really? Yeah, it's fantastic. And it's also a, a grocery store, a little uh, authentic Mexican market. It's fantastic. What tacos do you get? Pastor mm. um, and the asada, but the pastor with pineapple is my favorite. It's delicious. That's delightful. Yeah. Also, a dozen tamales for 10 bucks. Can't beat it. Oh. Really? Yep. Andy? Uh, with everything going on, it's kind of not been fun because we haven't been able to eat out as often with You've been how busy. busy we've been. So pretty much we've been living off of either our three-day-a-week 
food meal delivery that we have to cook ourselves, which is kind of relaxing, or something like Uber Eats, Postmates. And so we like to just kind of scour the entire universe for whatever we're feeling that night and just make it really easy on us. And that's where we've really been going. So we've just kind of been playing all over. So Ryan's fortunate that he gets to just walk to San Antonio's. I have to like kind of play Frogger across Independence <laughs> Avenue. It's it's a bit dodgy, but it's worth it. Dodgy. That's, that's, that's a good word. Where'd you learn the word dodgy? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I don't I don't recall. Uh, probably Tom Nickel from Scotland. Uh, definitely Tom Nickel. That's one of his favorite words. I can't repeat the others um, on the air, but that's one of them. Tom Nickel, one of the big names you guys have brought in to help with the distilling process. Absolutely. The ma- greatest master gin distiller in the world. So if you're thinking, wait a minute, aren't they whiskey? You guys are whiskey, gin, Cafe Amaro. Uh, yeah, we've got four primary products that we're really proud of. The vodka, the gin, whiskey, and the Cafe Amaro. I'm still thinking food over here. <laughs> I, I mean, we switched. We switched to the drink. That was quick. You, you know what? I'm also stoked for. I'm stoked for Carlos Falcone's new uh, sushi and oyster restaurant in Brookside. That's right, Sayachi. I keep yeah. trying to peek in the paper on the windows, but they've got it pretty well covered up. So, I've been here in July. Oh, uh, you know, as these things go, that's right. what I've heard. Apparently, opening up a new venue takes a lot of work. You guys uh, don't know anything about that. <laughs> Uh, it sounds sounds like a fictitious story. <laughs> we were talking earlier about where to start with the story of Jay Rieger and Co. Because there is so many chapters to it, which is wonderful. Maybe we start with the most recent, the new chapter, the distillery opening up on Thursday. Guys, just catch us up to what's going on. I'm going to let Andy take this one. So we, we were fortunate when we started back in 2014 to pick a space in an area that not only had a lot of authenticity and history behind it being the East Bottoms area, the Electric Park neighborhood within the East Bottoms. But we also had that fortune to be in a space where we were in 15,000 square feet, which was connected to a 45,000 square foot historic building. So being able to grow, it was just natural. And when we were able to finally purchase our building and the historic building and an acre right next to it for parking, it just kind of all came together as this is going to be our home forever and we can really do something. And then really the play was, what do we do? Hmm. And I think that's where the the real struggle really came into really planning everything out. So build it and they will come, right? You're in the East Bottoms. Absolutely. Kind of a pioneering move. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Did you do any studies or anything to see how to draw people down there? Or just knew from your past experience with distillery tours that this was going to be a hot spot. I think it's kind of a, a combination. I, I I wouldn't say that we're the the first. You know, I think um, Knuckleheads really paved the way, and then uh, Local Pig. When Local Pig opened there, I don't know five six years ago, whenever that was, um, it, their their success was really inspiring and a little surprising when you think about um, just how much traffic they got on a, on a regular basis. I mean, there was always a line out the door for Pigwitch, so that was kind of. That proved that people will venture down to that neighborhood, mm. um, and that was that was enough for us to say it's absolutely worth you know investing in and taking it to the next level. Does GPS know where you guys are? Because mm. the first time I came oh. down to Local Pig, I remember being really in weird, weird little side streets trying to figure out: Do I go right? Do I go left? I'm just going to come out right now and say that the best way to go is go down Independence Avenue to Chestnut. And it drops you right in on top of the the distillery because every other way you go, if you follow 
Google Maps, if you follow Uber or Lyft directions, it always defaults to the interstate, and you're going to run into uh, railroad tracks or maybe a massive sinkhole. Um, <laughs> oh, <no>. You know, <laughs> um, it, it, it is a little bit of an isolated neighborhood, and there are definitely barricades in some. Ex- we're worried about that a little bit, but um, the easiest and most direct route that will uh, get you there is is uh, through Independence Avenue. One of the things, though, that the sinkhole side. There's a huge sinkhole on what we would consider our main access road, which is Gwinnott, which is how you get there from the river market. You don't go over any railroad tracks that way either. So a really easy way to normally explain to people is just drive to the river market and then listen to your GPS because it's just three minutes from the river market. So it's really not far at all. And that was actually something that we did get concerned with, me being the pessimist, Ryan being the optimist. (laughs) Um, For example, when we were interviewing our events coordinator, I asked her and I said, what do you think the issues are? And she goes, I think it's, you know, a little timely to get down here. And I said, okay, you're in downtown right now. I go, on a Friday night when someone's coming to an event, is it easier time-wise to get to downtown, find parking, walk to the space, and deal with all the traffic and the lights, or get to here? And she was like, yeah, you're probably right. It's easier to get here and park right outside the building than it is going downtown. I think it's just getting used to it, the visuals, and finding Chestnut is the other one. Because that does drop you in, and I think it took me a dozen times down there before I figured out that that route. So that's pretty cool. What a great building. You think like oh. banks, though, Jill. <laughs> I, I do. Those I? are the questions they always ask. They're like, huh, people will never come down here. <laughs> and we had to go get numbers from knuckleheads it's and that, local pig. And we're like, they get over 100,000 people a year each. Yeah, it's that journalism thing. They're coming you know. for the whiskey, right? Well, and, and I just remember being in the car with the photographer trying to get to you the first time. She's like, where are we? But I figured it out. It's not that hard. You know, the first time I heard uh, the name Heim in relation to you guys was when Andy was taking us all down to the basement to look at this tunnel that they had just found underneath the original distillery. How incredible. Talk about that and, and, and kind of the journey to the Heim building. Well, the so the tunnel that we that we excavated um, in our building, it's in our building is in the old bottling plant uh, that was built in 19, 1900, opened in 1901. Um, and it was dedicated to just bottling Heim beer and shipping um, Heim beer. But they would pipe the beer from the brewery, which is about 400 feet away underground um, and had this tunnel that I, I believe they also probably transported barrels of, of beer. Um, and so it had been sealed up probably since, you know, Prohibition or, or shortly after. Uh, so as soon as we acquired the building, we, of course, wanted to open it up and see what was behind <laughs> behind there. Right. Uh, but it does. It, it does uh, go uh, from our building to the original Heim uh, Brewery and was used uh, for transporting beer b- between the two. This is such a fascinating history, and I know you're a total history geek. This is This is why this is even happening. Tell us a little bit about getting excited about what that building could be and moving down there into the East Bottoms in the first place. I mean, that, that used to be a very vibrant neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, you know, 80, 90 years ago, it was absolutely a hundred <laughs> years ago. Even it was, it was a, a very vibrant neighborhood and really, a really important part of Kansas city history dating back to the, the mid to late 1800s. It was, uh, it was very vibrant, very, very populated. Um, Himes had a, a massive, uh, influence on that in expanding their brewery empire and then building electric park, which just really took it to the next level. They they constructed the Heimline, so the Kansas City Streetcar Line extended directly to their facility. 
uh, to bring people in. And then eventually we ended up having commuter rail from around the Midwest bringing people directly to Electric Park. So that's part of the reason that that a big part of the reason that neighborhood really uh, grew up. But after Prohibition, you know, that it put the Himes out of business and, um, and, and it really hasn't recovered since then. Describe what that You've done enough research. What did it look like back in the day? I heard Disney was inspired by right. it, and I, I'm imagining fountains with beer. You know, uh, well, absolutely. I mean that. Them. So that part, and we're, we're actually we're constructing right now, and we're going to have as part of our distillery experience a 4,000 square foot historic exhibit. So a museum quality exhibit that tells that story. Um, it's not only going to tell the story of Jay Rieger and Company's history, but Heim Electric Park, that building, the neighborhood. Um, that whole thing. And we're really going to dig into that. I mean, Electric Park was um, really ahead of its time and was uh, was vibrant. And they had beer piped underground from the brewery mm. to the to the park to a beer garden. Um, they had an alligator farm. They had I mean, it was oh, really right. the what I've learned through this research is that the Heim family was, was quite eccentric. Um, they were really a, a fascinating uh, family with all kinds of really wacky ideas. Um, as far as like the, the Disney influence, that really happened at the second Electric Park. So in 1907, they relocated Electric Park down to like 46th and Paseo around oh, the Swope Park area oh, wow. and made it bigger and even more grandiose. And that's where uh, Walt Disney was inspired. That's pretty incredible. And the Heim family, it, it's so fascinating to me that this tradition and this family, the Riegers, are bringing back with Ryan and everyone else this neighborhood again. And it was a family selling alcohol 100 years ago that brought that neighborhood to life. That's fabulous. Heim shut down during Prohibition. So did Jay Rieger and Co. the first time around. Started in 1887. Ryan, take me back to when you're thinking about starting Manifesto and Rieger the restaurant and you're looking for a building and you stumble upon the Rieger Hotel. Yeah, that was uh, so that was back in 2008. Um, I had opened a, a bar in the in the crossroads called JP Wine Bar and Coffee House, which is where Tannen is located now at 16th and Walnut. Um, I opened that in 2006. Um, in 2008, moved on and, and I had this idea for this, you know, throwback to the 1920s speakeasy style bar. I was going to call it manifesto. I wanted someplace dark, someplace hidden, discreet, small, intimate, uh, where we could do really high end cocktails and that kind of thing. And, um, I had met the chef owner of the restaurant that was located in the old Rieger hotel. It was called 1924 Maine at the time. Um, and he heard I was looking for something. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about it. I told him my idea and he basically said, you can have my basement. So that's how I ended up in that building. Um, I didn't know anything about the building at the time. Um, that, that came a little bit later. So we opened manifesto in April of 2009. And then about one year later, the restaurant upstairs went out of business in uh, spring of 2010, uh, which is when I went to the landlord and said, I wanted to, to take over the restaurant and do something different. Entered Jacob Rieger's great, great, great grandson. Is that right, Andy? Three, correct. Three, Three greats. Uh, where were you when the Rieger restaurant opened in life? What was going on with you? I was living in Dallas, Texas, working for, at that time, I was working for a private equity firm, bank hybrid type place, um, really doing something totally unrelated to what we're doing now, but, you know, very credit related, very overlap, actually. Uh, and, came back to visit my mom. My dad had actually just passed away of cancer. And so I really wanted to go in and see what was going on in an old family, historic heirloom, more or less. And one of the things my dad asked was, if I'm not around, make sure you go in and say hi to them and just introduce yourself. And 
show them uh, whatever they need help with. Make sure you help them out. So I really took it on a little bit as like a mission to meet Ryan, meet Howard, see what they were doing. And the first night I went in, Ryan pretty much blew me off thinking I wanted a free appetizer <laughs> or a free cocktail or something. <laughs> the next night I came back, I brought a manila envelope of a ton of photographs that they needed to really complete their wall when you enter. And then I got my free appetizer and free, right. drink. <laughs> free drinks as well. <laughs> well, that's amazing. Uh, it was like it was opening night. We always describe that opening night a little bit differently, but now as Andy's about to find out with this new opening, is opening a a business like that can be pretty stressful. So opening night, you know, is going to be a bit of a blur. I'll bet you know when you got all those people coming in. But it was it was definitely remarkable having gone through that process of of starting to dig into the history of the Rieger name and the Rieger building. Um, so when Howard and I first partnered to to do the restaurant, we're like, well, what's it going to be? What's the identity? And as far as I was concerned. The the, hotel, the the building was known as the Rieger Hotel. I was like, let's bring that back and let's talk about that story. And so I started digging into the history of the Rieger name, of the Rieger Hotel, and attaching that history to the restaurant. So, you know, I didn't know anybody within within the Rieger family. So that opening night uh, for, for him to walk in the door and introduce himself as, as you know, a member of the Rieger family was a little uh, overwhelming uh, on top of everything else, for sure. Did you even believe him? You know, I actually had a couple of other people with the last name Rieger reach out to me during the construction process that were not affiliated with the the actual Rieger family that that built this. So uh, I I was probably a little skeptical at first. Sure. Yeah. Those were the people that wanted free things. That's right. They they really did. So, Andy, that's pretty incredible. I don't think I knew that your dad talked about that. And you guys had family pictures. Did you grow up knowing about Jay Rieger and company? Uh, yeah, we had it as, you know, I, my funniest story I always say is growing up, we had old advertisements, old shot glasses, old bottles. But when you're growing up as a kid, you don't care about that stuff. And the way I always describe it is I was more interested in what was for dinner that night rather than really learning about family history and taking it on. But one of the cool things about the historic exhibit that we have is we really dug deep into family scrapbooks. And there's a lot of pictures of me with my dad and my grandpa standing in front of the old building um, really getting to spend some time there and really connecting a lot of the dots. But even in high school, we were ridiculous when we would steal parents' alcohol. We would just, uh, you know, pour it in these 130-year-old shot glasses. Oh, my gosh. Thinking it was just a shot glass. Who cares? No real regard for what it was as a relic. And going back, you're very upset with yourself. But you're like, hey, it still works. Perfect. Right, They'd right. be really proud knowing they had a quality product that 130 years later still gets the job done. <laughs> No, but it, but it really came, uh, it was when my father had cancer that really became very sentimental to me. And he talked about it once very briefly uh, when he was still alive, but he actually left me a series of videos that he had recorded without me knowing mm-hmm. on his computer just as like life lessons. And they were one to two minute long each. And one of them was about family history. And on that family history one, he in it actually said, they're going to open this restaurant. It looks really cool from the newspaper article. Um, I don't know. You might have even written it, Jill. I don't even know. But point oh, being wow. was, um, it was just when I saw it, I was like, all right, that's what I'm doing. Like, as soon as that place opens, when I'm in Kansas City, I am going to go see them and I'm going to go down there. And so that Christmas, I was here for seven days and I think I ate there three nights. Hmm. That's pretty incredible. It is. <clears throat> you guys have really stayed true to that as much as possible. I mean, the logo is the original logo used, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, we've we've tried to stay really true to the history of the brand. Um, so when Howard Howard and I opened the restaurant, the logo for uh, the, the restaurant, we really played off of the uh, kind of a cross between the shield for Jay Rieger and Company and the 
uh, tile logo are in the, in the floor of the the Rieger Hotels. We kind of did a kind of a hybrid. Oh, because it's still there, right? The tile floor. The original tile floor is still in the the Rieger Hotel um, and with the R in it and everything. And so we kind of did a hybrid logo for the restaurant initially. Now the the Rieger restaurant the the logo has switched over about four or five years ago and went just straight to the R logo exactly as it is. Um, but yeah, we really wanted to to be true to the history of the brand. And so when um, Andy and I started, you know, working on resurrecting the the whiskey brand itself, uh, we ended up just going, there's no reason not to go with the original logo that was, you know, trademarked in 1887. And oh, so good. Absolutely. That's the motto. That's the original motto. Too. It is. all. It's on all their marketing materials. Uh, the shot glasses that Andy was describing has oh, so good on it. It's You'll, you'll notice the, the mural on the south side of the Rieger building uh, has the banner on the bottom that says oh, so good. So it was a very big part of their, their marketing campaign, and it's on every bottle today. And I think the biggest part about that is it's real. It's authentic. I mean, we're not creating some fake story and trying to make people believe this historical path that wasn't real that's very skewed we just said and this even goes to we're showing this in the historic exhibit the very first draft of a bottle that we came up with for jay rieger and co was a very modern interpretation of what maybe it could have evolved into and when comparing that to the old we said gosh the old is so cool Hmm. why don't we just update it so that you can obviously tell that it is the same general company and branding and style but it's just what it would look like without really changing the true, authentic, timeless, classic history approach. And that was something that we just felt really tied then and now together. And it still plays true today. And then you go into the Heim Brewery and the building that we're in and renovation, renovation of this whole entire historic building that is the then and now. And the then and now is probably our theme more than anything else now that we're really saying it. Very much so. And that bottle that, that Andy's describing, no one's ever seen it before. And it is on display in the in the historic exhibit, it was a prototype. And, um, so we had, you know, a a whole new look, uh, logo, uh, design created, you know, for Jay Rieger and company, uh, for our initial release that we, we just hated it when we saw it and said, why are we trying to deviate it all from the classic look? So that, that bottle is actually going to be on display. It's, It's interesting because it shows the evolution of our thought during that process, you know, the evolution of our conversations and, you know, how much we ended up valuing the, the real history. So I, I just think that part is really, really cool. Do you guys think having a century of history <laughs> built in made it easier to think about the company moving forward, what it would be like in 100 years from now? Because it feels like a lot of your planning is the long game. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that the the thing that we probably benefit from more than anything is the fact that relatively we're all very young. So we're trying to do this the right way. Mm. And there are so many people that start companies that don't look at it and say, I don't have 30 to 40 years to do this. So I got to make quick snap decisions that potentially aren't the right decisions if I was looking at this with a 20 to 30 year time horizon. But so that's why with us, we don't try to do the force yourself in your face marketing ever. We just try to tell the story and we hardly do any, our hashtags are oh so good or electric park. That's it. But those aren't popular hashtags because we want people to find us naturally. We're trying to build a brand that's generational, not something that sits here and we try to force on to you as a sales company. And so we're very brand driven, not sales driven. And I think that really 
exemplifies what our organization has become. Yeah, I think when you look at um, the spirits industry right now and this huge explosion in uh, smaller uh, distilleries and brands and, and, you know, those buzzwords like craft, like craft distillery, handcrafted, small batch, you know, all that stuff, we haven't really necessarily, we haven't latched on to that at all. We're not trying to capitalize on a trend. We're really just trying to be true to our history and do something uh, 100% our own way. It seems to me like you really kicked off a lot of people thinking about that in Kansas City, mm. trying to find their roots to pre-prohibition um, kinds of, of branding. <clears throat> so I'm thinking Tomstown right off the top of that. But it seems like people realized that's a really good way to tell a story instead of forcing it. Go find your history in relation to your brand. I, I like the fact that you said that because the reality is Jay Rieger and company was not the only distillery in Kansas City prior to Prohibition. There are others that were – there are other brands that existed out there that have not been brought back that you can, you can find information on. And I'm sure somebody has some sort of a personal connection to them. Hmm. Yeah. I mean to, to your point, I mean there were multiple distilleries that started after us that tried to find some random tie to history – and claim it as their own. And, but and they also came out with, you know, when we started, we had just whiskey and then we had vodka and then we had gin. And we got those because vodka bartenders started asking for. And then mm. gin because Tom Nickel left Tanqueray to come to Jerry Rieger & Co. So, of course, you had those and then you had all these other brands that started up and they're like, oh, well, we need to have some tie to history. We need to have vodka. We need to have gin and we need to have whiskey. And it was a very, like, clear and concise, well, this is what we need to do versus – a different like ramp up type of approach. And I think that goes a little bit to the like the the shorter or the longer type game, which there's no right or wrong way of how to do it. You're just approaching the problem a little bit differently. So part of the reason, you know, we see so many places that start out with tasting room tours, all of that. And you guys really focus the distillery on, yes, come visit, but this is where we make stuff more than this is how you experience Yeah, there's right? no question. I mean, that was that was by design from the very beginning. We wanted to start as a manufacturer, as building a brand and get people accustomed to ordering our, our products behind, uh, you know, in other bars, other restaurants and buying bottles off of the shelf. We didn't want um, we didn't want the, the consumer to think of Jay Rieger and company as a place, you know, um, and I think if you start out with that tasting room model, that small micro distillery with a fancy bar model, people automatically associate with you with a place like, oh, I've gone there or I've been meaning to get there. We wanted people to think of us as a brand like, oh, I've, I've drank that. It's really good. And it's, it's a small kind of nuanced difference, but I think it matters in the long term for building a brand. And then you can drink it anywhere, not just at the place. Exactly. One of my favorite stories on that was... We didn't sell bottles even during tours for the first two years. Really? And we would have people all the time. We were allowed to legally. We just opted not to. And people would say, okay, how about I give you $60 cash? I want to buy it from the <laughs> distillery. And we would tell them. it was. We used the term, oh, well, we don't have that license, even though we did. We just said, yeah, we, we don't have that license, so we can't even legally sell it to you. So you'll have to go to a liquor store. And maybe... 30% of the people that were going to buy a bottle on tour day went to a liquor store and actually drink the product now. But you know what? Those 30% of the people, we taught them that this is a brand. This isn't a place. Don't come down here and buy it. And all the people that wanted to buy it down there that couldn't, they know that they don't come to our distillery to buy the product. So if someone says, hey, will you pick up a bottle of this? They know, ah, I'm supposed to go to the liquor store. Hmm. And that was something that was you know, the one of our partners who recently passed away, Dave Pickerel, who ran Maker's Mark, 
uh, he called me the biggest idiot initially <laughs> because I wasn't wanting to take advantage of retail revenue, which has such high margins. And I said, yeah, but that's, that, that's the very short-term, near-minded mindset. And we're really trying to play this game so that people look at it and they're like, oh, I live in Prairie Village. I'm going to go to Ryman Liquor. I live in Brookside. I'll go to whatever number of liquor stores over there. Or I live out south or I live up north by the airport. And they know their liquor store and they know that we're available in their liquor store. Can we go back to Dave for a minute? Because I think it's yeah. pretty incredible that you guys, I mean, neither one of you were distillers by trade when you started this thing. So how did he become part of this? That's a, that's a fun story. Um, I knew Dave Pickerel. I had, had met him a few times. Um, and uh, during this process of Andy and I kind of you know conversing back and forth about the, the strategy and possibility of, of bringing back the brand, um, I'll actually, I'll let Andy tell it because it, it's kind of funny. Um, I just neglected to tell him about Dave Pickerel until he got until he he brought it up he's like he's like you know how do you know how to make whiskey and i said well i really don't but so so this sort of goes to the little bit of the startup play with um ryan's background restaurants my background finance investment banking private equity side and so you know i think of it as can you sell this business to an investor that is willing to fund it and some basic questions come up, whereas, you know, Ryan looks at the problem entirely differently. And one of the very first things I said was, I go, man, so we're, let's say we're four years into this and we've been making whiskey. Any, anyone can make whiskey. I mean, the number of people that you all know that have a home still doesn't mean they know how to make whiskey. That means <laughs> they know how to produce whiskey. So I said, what if in four years we start opening barrels and sucks <laughs> <laughs> i actually didn't have that concern but it's and, legit and this is the pessimist versus the optimist and ryan's like well, i don't know and i was like then we've been making it wrong for four years and <laughs> we don't know for four years that we've been doing it so wrong and we're screwed <laughs> and so ryan goes well i i was bartending the manhattan cocktail classic recently and the guy that used to run maker's mark i was telling him all about it and he was in love with the story and he said oh, if you ever need help let me know <laughs> And I go, well, this would have been something that you should have probably like told me that night. <laughs> That's pretty huge, man. Let's talk to that person. It's, it's kind of the, the nature of the hospitality uh, industry and the bartending community nationwide. It's so tight knit, you know, and you get to meet all these amazing people that have huge influence on the industry. And um, to be fair, I mean, you, I think everyone kind of takes it for granted. Like, oh, yeah, I know Dave Pickerel, of course. Hmm. That guy's great, you know, or I know Tom Nickel, the master distiller of Tanqueray. But, I mean, wow. but he's right. I mean, in order, to, to like really give credibility uh, to the brand and also you know uh, prevent you know having any any major uh, problems during startup or, or doing something terribly wrong you know having those resources are, are invaluable uh, speaking of having these guys come and really help you formulate what your <clears throat> products are going to be tasting like now what's Kansas City whiskey you guys do it a little differently right yeah so uh, that was a process um, you know we talk about aging whiskey for four years. You know, if you're going to make straight bourbon, straight rye, um, it doesn't buy straight uh, bourbon or rye has to be aged minimum two years. But really, I think if you're going to compete with the really quality whiskey brands on the market, you've got to have at least four years in barrel for it to, to mature and, and get those complex flavors and uh, really get where you want it. So from a startup perspective, from a business point of view, how do you invest all that money in four years of labor and barrels and production without seeing any 
revenue, right? Well, the modern model is if you're going to make whiskey, fine, and then you supplement that with vodka or gin or something like that that doesn't require any aging at all. Mm. But we didn't want to resurrect the brand as a vodka brand because we didn't make vodka back in the 1800s. We wanted to be a whiskey brand. So then the question becomes, how do you become a whiskey brand right out of the gates if it takes four or five years to produce? So the answer to that is you source barrels, right? So you buy in bulk barrels from other distilleries um, that that produce product that are that's intended to be sold to startups like us. Um, and then we either could have bottled it straight, like right out of the barrel, like straight bourbon. That's And that's a common practice. You see it everywhere. But we wanted to do something proprietary and something different that spoke to our roots. And so we just made it harder on ourselves, really, by kind of going down that path and saying, well, how do we make something unique <clears throat> that is um, really speaks to Jay Regan and company's history. And through a lot of research and a lot of trial and error, we discovered that back then it was really common for American distillers to blend sherry into their whiskey. And so that was what we ended up uh, going for. So we sourced a few different uh, whiskey products in barrel, and then we uh, we rectify it with a 15-year-old Oloroso sherry. Where do you go to do all this research? Is it is it available <coughs> in the library? Where, where are you finding a lot of the information that you use? Like... The original recipe, how would you... Well, we don't have any don't actual have original recipe. The reality is that prior to Prohibition, there was very little, if any, government regulation, laws, anything like that. And so um, you could do whatever you wanted back then, put it in a bottle. Even bourbon back then, back then was not legally defined or enforced by the government. And so if you bought a bottle of bourbon in the 1880s or 1890s, it might have been real bourbon, but it might not have been. It might have been a counterfeit. So and we, we talk about all this in the historic exhibit, too. But, you know, the research, there's a lot of, uh, you know, conjecture and kind of speculation out there. But uh, in, there are people in the industry that have written books on the history of American uh, American whiskey production and and people that really know. So it's, it's a combination of researching in the library online and also through... Um, industry experts that have that have really done a lot of the legwork, um, but the the addition of sherry is uh, that's kind of a, a category that hasn't really been explored and nobody's really talked about it. But what we've discovered is that it was really commonplace. It was a frequent um, practice back then. So do you have to read like accounts of people talking about it if you don't have a recipe? Where do you where do you start? To well, realize? The, luckily for us, um, Dave had um, reviewed enough of the legal. Um, uh, outline for uh, American whiskey production that he he knew there was a lot of information in there uh, through the TTB that that nobody really paid attention to because after you know prohibition decimated um, all American spirits production for 14 years and then once it was revived really the, the only things that were kind of known 14 years later was like well we know that bourbon was a thing you know, we know that rye really? was a thing, and so they came back. And a lot of those laws were written in 1934 to 1938, right around that time period, um, because it had just been repealed, and so we were trying to get and revive the industry in the United States. But everyone sort of defaulted to bourbon production. Hmm. Um, but buried deep in the TTB uh, guidelines, there was a reference to um, the use of sherry in American whiskey, and it actually says in there through established trade practice. And that was the part that caught me when I saw it. I was like, how is this established trade practice in 1934? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, because it, it, it basically alluded to the fact that this was widespread prior to prohibition. And yeah, that's what kind of led down, led down that rabbit hole. 
what does it add to the whiskey if somebody hasn't tried Rieger whiskey? Does it add like a sweetness, a touch of that, or yeah, a little bit. Um, the the sherry that we use is a 15 year old Oloroso that we get from uh, Williams and Humbert in Jerez de la Frontera in Spain, and it has this. It's kind of a medium sweet, so it has this like rich nuttiness to it, kind of a dried fruit characteristic, some like butterscotch or maple flavors, that kind of thing. But it's only two percent. Um, that's the thing I have to to, to keep in mind and, and always remind people is that it's only 2% of the final blend. So it's not, it doesn't necessarily make the whiskey sweeter or or like that. It just adds this subtle depth to it and complexity to it. It's really beautiful. What about the new distillery? If somebody's walking in the front doors next week, this week, the 12th, right? The 12th is opening day. What are the amazing things they're going to see? So the the biggest things that we sort of like laid out for how to you know, to go to Jill's comment earlier about when you're trying to do something in a neighborhood that people aren't overly familiar with, you have a lot of people that want to cast doubt on it, regardless of what it is. You could build um, a Shake Shack down there if it was the first one in the city, and people would be like, "Oh, what a terrible location!" But but you know what? I'm I'm still gonna go. And so people can get past that pretty quickly. But we really had to lay out a bunch of ideas that we felt were sort of the keys to success of. The first one was you have to give enough carrots to bring people down. You have to make it an all-day experience, you, right? You, you do. You have to do enough things that make people say, you know what? Yeah, that, that sounds cool. I'm, I'm going to invest and go down there. And when I say go down there, again, it's easier to get there than the airport. I mean, it takes half the time from here or a quarter of the time than to get into the airport. So you had to have carrots. The second one was first impression. And so whether that first impression is pulling up into the parking lot or looking at the building for the first time or walking in for the first time, or walking around the space and seeing the second floor, or seeing the production area, whatever it is, that first impression has to be immaculate. And then the third one is experience. And if that experience fails you, whether you're waiting too long for your drink, or it's not clean, or people are unfriendly, or the food was no good, or whatever you may want to define your experience as, it might be a reason for you to not come down. So we really wanted to focus hard on hiring a full-blown retail team so that they can truly manage it because we don't want this to look like a side business. So we basically split our companies into two where there's the production and distribution slash sales through distribution channels of J. Rieger & Co. And then there is the come visit J. Rieger & Co. side. And so we have a general manager of retail operations, and he has five different sub-level managers beneath them. And then there's about 55 um, employees that just started last week with us. From how many before? So from about seven or eight. Wow. Yeah, yeah. We, we kept it pretty lean for a long time and we were proud of it. Yeah, it was for, you know, for about the first four and a half years, it was, we went from one employee to seven or eight and then started hiring our managers earlier this year for, for the visitor's experience. And then overnight went from like 12 to over 60. So that's, that's been a, and that's just been within the, the past few weeks. So we've, we've just been conducting staff training over the last, uh, last couple of weeks. It's been a lot of fun. So talk a little bit about the food, because whenever people drink, they tend to want some food. Mm. What's what's that piece of it? Um, so we brought on a, a chef, Marita Swift, uh, formerly uh, at uh, California's. Uh, she's fantastic. And, you know, we we wanted to make sure that we're providing food that's going to keep people there, keep people engaged. It's going to be delicious. But we're also not looking at providing a full restaurant experience. I mean, we have to, to make sure that we're true to who we are, and that's we are a distillery, right? And so we, we focus on that first and then make sure that the, the food is, is really good quality. But there are some limitations put around it. So the kitchens are kind of decide, designed to be 
um, prep kitchens, uh, catering kitchens, because we have a large, really large event space. So we'll be able to conduct, you know, a lot of private parties and stuff like that. And we, we might bring in caterers if necessary. But uh, we wanted to have uh, food all day long. So we'll have food starting uh, 9 a.m. every day and going into the night uh, into to, to bar service. So um, I'm excited. The The menu that that Marita has, has put forth, I've been really impressed with. Like, I've tried some of the food already, and it's delicious. It's also more involved than I thought we would be able to do um, on site there, but it, it's looking great. Snacky or I, I would say tapas like uh, I, I would like? say like very shared plate heavy, but you know gotcha. you can get a club sandwich as well. Mm-hmm. So the whole goal that we really gave her in terms of parameters was we need the food to be something because people look at three things when they want to go out: the food, the drink, and the experience. And drink and experience are what we want people to lead with, but food can't lag. And so we want the food to be something that people don't use as that negative to say, well, but they don't have food. Mm. Or, uh, the food's not very good. We need everyone to be like, yep, you can eat down there and it's great. Mm-hmm. But, man, the drinks and getting to see the views and with, depending upon which bar you're at and really being able to enjoy that drinking and social type atmosphere, again, depending upon which bar you're at, that's what we want people to take away. The food just has to be there for, A, responsibility. We don't want people to be drinking without food. But number two... Yeah. I mean, if you can make it really good while making it really simple, that's fantastic. One of the things that we're doing is popcorn with Joe's fry seasoning on it. And it is is genius. It's it's incredible. (laughs) Um, And it's beyond delicious. But so thirsty. But so but but you have one of those things and you just have a ton of them. I mean, meat boards and cheese trays and, you know, sandwiches and wraps Um, in the morning. We're opening for coffee at 9 a.m. And we've got a ton of Wi-Fi coverage in the main lounge, which is 5000 square feet. We're really trying to encourage this working crowd to be able to come. And that lounge overlooks the production floor. And so imagine bringing your laptop, writing whatever article, drinking coffee. Thou mayest, uh, their former head of their retail operation, is going to run the mornings for us. And so the breakfast will be very simple, though, like, you know, just a, a quiche, a meat version and a vegetarian version with a bagel of the day. You know, something where it's not not a crazy complex menu ever at any point in the day. But it's just enough that you say, yeah, that's all I really need. What I think is really interesting about it, for me, it's kind of come full circle because when I opened Manifesto 10 years ago, it was cocktails and cocktails only. I mean, we really, we had like five menu items that we, the bartenders could basically make like a little bowl of popcorn or whatever, but it was really about the cocktails. It was really spirit forward. Um, there was a very, you know, thoughtful culinary approach given to the drinks themselves. So then when we opened, when Howard and I partnered to do the Rieger a year later, I wanted to dial the cocktails back a little bit at the bar at the Rieger to complement the food because the food was really the star at the Rieger and it still is. And if you look at the, if you go into the Rieger for dinner now, um, you'll notice that in the cocktail menu that the cocktails are not meant to outshine or overpower the food. Uh, they're meant to, to complement dinner. But with this, with the, you know, with the distillery, we wanted the food to be really good and substantial, but to complement the drinks. And so like, you know, Andy mentioned the the Joe's KC barbecue seasoned popcorn. Like, I can't wait to have that with a horse feather, you know. And so I think um, Rita has used a lot of influence from our spirits and incorporated that into the food um, so that it, it works kind of that, that reverse way. And I think it's really cool. I need to fangirl on Ryan for a moment because I have to tell you, the Red Bell has become <laughs> the cocktail of which I measure all other cocktails. It is my favorite. It was life changing as a cocktail could be. 
if you haven't had it, it's a manifesto, and it, it just tastes like you're drinking a red bell pepper. It's truly amazing how how frequently I hear that. About and that one? That particular drink. Let, let's ask Lindsay, what, what is the base spirit in that? Gin? Yeah. Because I shop for cocktails by spirit, right? Gin or vodka, and that one. But it's also, amazing. it's one of those, it's a perfect uh, drink to convert someone from a vodka drinker to a gin drinker. Like <laughs> yes. people, I mean, it still ha- it's happened every single day at that bar for 10 years. Uh- um, people will come in saying, I hate gin. I can't drink gin. It's only vodka. The beautiful red bell will change their mind. Um, it still happens every day. It's amazing. And that drink's been on the menu since the beginning for 10 years. One of the only ones, right? I mean, you change uh, there's it a out. Few, there's a few. It, the, the menu and manifesto changes seasonally. Um, but, uh, like five, probably five years ago, I kind of changed the format of the menu to where one side is manifesto classics. So like the classic drinks that like manifesto really became famous for stay on the menu all the time. And that's one of them. Sorry for the detour. I just had to bring up the real. I I love talking cocktails. (laughs) I don't think that's a detour. Are you going to be pairing, uh, cocktails with, with the food at? Jay Rieger and Co. Or just let people kind of. I think that's going to be a natural uh, thing that develops. Absolutely, it's not on. It's not like uh, on the menu uh, worded that way. But I think that's going to become a natural uh, thing that that the bartenders and the service staff uh, do with with our guests. Because I'll be asking, you know, what goes with the popcorn with the Joe's season? Totally. And you're gonna you're gonna have a couple options for me, right? Absolutely. So let's talk. Lindsay, I need to know about the slide. Yes, about yes. you? Yeah. Let's talk about the slide. What is the slide? As the as the money guy that's responsible for dealing with all the banks, the slide was the biggest issue ever. I'm amazed it actually got done. I'm like, how did that not get cut from the budget? So we we did, being that this project doesn't follow any blueprints for other projects, and that's why it's been so hard when people are asking and we're not actually there. They're like, so, so what is it like? And you can describe it, and they're like, God, it just doesn't make sense. But then people come down and they see it, and they're like, I get it. Like, <laughs> it totally makes sense. Everything flows from... The boardroom to the the barrel dining room that's inside all the barrel racks to the Hey Hey Club, which is the jazz social club in the basement, to the Monogram Lounge, which overlooks the production area, to the what will be open next spring, the outdoor garden bar that's ginormous. And the whole idea there was do things that we think bring people down. And as a part of that, wasn't just functionality, but what are some things that people have never seen before? Things that will make them say, yeah, it was amazing. And they have blank. And one of the things that our entire team, not me, I will be the first to not take credit for it. Everyone was like, we need a slide because no one has an adult slide in town and adult slides are awesome. And if you are upstairs and you want to get downstairs, it's the easiest way to get down. And it's it's beautiful. It looks like art. Can you get on with your drink though? No, no, no. drinks on the slide. Smart. Probably Sheesh. people. Well, you wouldn't even want to do even that in a to-go cup, floor. maybe. I mean, <laughs> we do. The, the The best was our insurance company. Um, they were like, "Okay, we're gonna have to talk about this slide thing after it was already installed." And I was like, "Oh God!" And they started their questioning, and about you know how dangerous slides are and all this. And I said, "Okay, I go. Do you guys insure uh, cars?" And they go, "Yeah." I was like, "Okay." I go, we'll come back to that. And I go, do you guys uh, insure buildings with stairs? And they go, yeah. I go, okay, let's go back to the cars. I go, 
how many uh, car accidents do you guys have claims on a year versus slide accidents? And they're like, yeah, okay, we get it. And And Andy with the logic. And then I go, okay, I go in stairs. I go, if you've got a friend who's had two drinks and you're like, whoa, I don't have, I don't feel comfortable about you taking the stairs. I go, do you think the slide's a safer route for them to get down the stairs? And they're like, yeah, okay, yeah, we get it. This is fine. Not not an issue. Okay, moving on. So once that was cleared, we were all good. I think the the great thing about it is it really embraces the the spirit of Electric Park and the Himes. I talked a little bit about you know how the that family was so eccentric and their vision for Electric Park was was really offbeat and really out there. Um, so I think it kind of embraces that creativity and that fun part of Electric Park, and we're we're bringing back that name, that brand. And it just fits perfectly into that concept. The first ride in Electric Park 2.0. Right. We couldn't do a Ferris wheel or a roller coaster, (laughs) uh, so we did a slide to start. Yet. Not yet. (laughs) Speaking of branding, I was looking on your page to see what kinds of things you sell besides T-shirts. Ran across mm, a needlepoint flask, a dog toy, (laughs) um, just a onesie that was cute as heck for little little babies. Um, (laughs) First of all, who's buying these things? This is whoever's your your buyer. Very very smart. But this, I'll, I'll tell my wife that I planted that in your ear. There you go. <laughs> um, so so I feel like there's some of you coming through in some of the items people can purchase. Because Ryan, I know you have a lovely dog. I have that a, we see a on lovely Instagram. little dog. Yeah, Cute this, little guy. Did you test this toy little on, guy. on your little guy? You know, he's gone through a few of them. Um, he's, he's, he's destroyed a few of them. But the, the dog toy has been a big hit. Like, <laughs> you know, people uh, around the country have have, uh, have ordered it. And uh, I've sent uh, those dog toys to some, like, bar owners and, and bartenders in, in other cities that have dogs. And, I mean, people love their dogs. How, how do you not love uh, uh, anything that's branded for, for your dog, you know? Including all the Jay Rieger and Co. employees, how many distillery dogs are there? I think we're up to seven. I think something like that. I think I think the thing on uh, gift shop items, though, is and, and this is something that Lucy, my wife, who's our brand director, she's been very very cognizant of is don't do something that looks like you're reaching, and make sure that whatever you do, it's very built around the brand, so that people don't look at it and say like like we're not gonna ha- like whenever we walk into a distillery and they have a beer bottle opener, we're like what are you doing? Like that's, that's not even connected, but like a dog toy. I mean, you sit there and you think about it and you're like, well, yeah, everybody loves their dogs and they drink whiskey at home with their dogs and their dog gets to enjoy their bottle of whiskey while you enjoy your bottle of whiskey. Well, and also Pepper, Andy, your dog is all over the Jay Rieger Instagram. Adorable. Yeah. She's there every day. She's my emotional support animal. (laughs) And I'm going to guess, between the two of you, perhaps you spoke about onesies for babies. <laughs> oh, Pepper's on his phone background. Pepper's on the phone. Pepper and... is the emoji on the <laughs> iPhone of a dog. The, the onesie came into play when uh, Lucy was pregnant, and she was like, oh, yeah, we know what we should do. We should have baby clothes. And I was like, not a lot of baby clothes, maybe one. <laughs> and we were trying to think about a slogan to put on it because she just wanted to do like Jay Rieger and Co. or something. And I was like, eh, that. That, that's not catchy. That's not our brand. Like, we don't want to just put our logo on some baby. It kind of seems wrong. And so that was where we were just sit, literally sitting on our couch one night, and I go, I drink from the bottle. And I go, <laughs> that is the absolute epitome of what our brand is, which is fun and enjoyable. <laughs> and for a baby onesie to say, I drink from the bottle, obviously you have two purposes of how that can be interpreted. <laughs> and it's like 
father, son, mother, son, mother, daughter, father, daughter, whatever it may be. Again, it relates kind of like the dog toy. It's very fun. Does Svea have one? No, I'm just realizing, do you sell an adult I drink from the bottle shirt too? Because that's that's the new Father's Day and Mother's Day shirt pairing, right? Now you're talking. Forget the pizza and the slice of pizza I drink from the bottle. That's hilarious. We'll do do just one for you. (laughs) I thought it was very clever, as so much of your branding is very clever, um, but not I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean that in a in an organic way. But yet it's clever. It's usually the the result of uh, you know just hanging out as a as a group and as a team and having fun and and having a brainstorming session. Uh, we love to to brainstorm and just throw random ideas at the wall. And I don't think any of us are afraid to to throw weird stuff out there and and just see what sticks. You know, and, and I think that that's what makes it very organic. So if I'm coming out and I'm going on a tour before before I buy my dog toys and onesies, um, what do I see? Well, when you first walk in the building, um, the 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 first thing you're going to see really is the production floor. It's front and center, right in the middle of the building, and it's the heart and soul of the the whole operation. So there's a front desk um, and the glass panels right behind it uh, with the the column still and our original uh, whiskey still we call we affectionately refer to as cherry Um, and then you'll be greeted right there and if you're there for a tour on the right uh, there's about a 4,000 square foot museum quality historic exhibit that tells the story of the history of our brand the history of the Heim family and that building and Electric Park the Northeast Industrial District and then also Prohibition we kind of get into um, uh, you know, what happened during Prohibition and then how uh, Andy and I met and decided to resurrect the company. And that kind of takes you up to the point where we actually have a little movie theater. So people that are there for a tour, they'll uh, get to watch about a 10-minute long uh, animated video on uh, the resurrection of the brand. And then they'll get to go into the production floor and go from there and see how we make everything. Wow, so really educational. I'm going to know. And then, and then it ends with, again. obviously, huh? a taste <clears throat> Of course. Of course. Well, they they land in the tasting room. We really get to taste every, you know, through all of the products. And then right after the tasting room is the the gift shop. And then uh, if they want to stick around, um, upstairs is where we have the monogram lounge. That's the really big kind of public space um, main bar area. And then we have another uh, basement bar, uh, smaller, cozier, that we call uh, the Hey Hey Club. Is that a reference to an old Kansas City club? It is, yeah. The Hey Hey Club was a real famous jazz night club. Uh, during the 1930s and 1940s here in KC, where Count Basie really, uh, he held court and became uh, the legendary musician and, and band leader that he was. Another touch on KC history. We call it, so the, the reference to that, I mean, obviously we love to embrace Kansas City history, but um, I want to say it was like seven or, I was probably longer than that, eight or nine years ago, um, I found an old sign um, it was in one of the warehouses down in the West Bottoms, and it's a huge wooden sign that uh, was about 13 feet long. It's a box sign that lit up on the inside, and it said, Hey, Hey Club on it, and I knew what it was. I mean, I, I was familiar with that history of Kansas City, um, and it turns out this sign was the movie prop from Robert Altman's film, Kansas City, in 1988, oh, where wow. they recreated 
uh, that club and, and um, they filmed most of it down 18th and Vine, um, but this huge wooden sign uh, was, you know, down in the, just kind of buried under a, a bunch of junk. And so I bought it and uh, decided, yeah, someday I'm going to have this sign, uh, have a, a use for it, a purpose for it. And so that's what we decided to name the, uh, to name the, uh, oh, it was 1996. I was wrong about the, the year. Okay, wow. Um, I thought the film was in 88. Um, thanks, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> fa- Keep fa- fa- uh, facts checking. do matter, right? <laughs> fact check. Um, yeah, so uh, I knew at some point I'd have a, a use and a purpose for the sign, and, the, and that's where we decided to, to put it was to name the the basement lounge the Hey Hey Club, and the sign is going to be incorporated into it. It's going to be really cool. That's awesome. And are you going to have a lot of jazz? The idea is to have live music, uh, maybe not nightly. It's a small space, so it would be, you know, probably nothing more than a little jazz trio in the corner. It's not going to be the big, you know, kind of rollicking nightclub that the Hey Hey Club was way back in the day. Um, but they also sat on hay bales um, back then in the club, which we we have not recreated that either. <laughs> the furniture is a little bit more, uh, more comfortable. a little more comfortable. Yeah, apparently hay bales are a fire code issue. <laughs> Who knew? Who, hay bales and whiskey in one yeah. building. Yeah, <laughs> got to have them outdoors, I guess. Yeah, so hmm. or, or fire marshal probably hmm. just doesn't want them around at all. <laughs> That's odd. And you guys, we've had so much fun with both of you today. Thank you for coming in. We know you're a little busy. You need to get back to opening the distillery, but awesome. Thanks for having us. In the meantime, go to your liquor store, support local. Thanks so much. Guys. Absolutely, going to be fantastic. Can't wait to get down there. Opening day, July twelfth. July twelfth. July twelfth.